Welcome to the Zeke Sky Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me again. Be sure to give us a rating, subscribe on YouTube, or follow the podcast, or follow me on social media at Zeke Sky Official. When I was thinking about making this episode, what I really wanted to do was find an area of science that was in some way controversial, but not because it was specifically politically controversial. I wanted an area that was philosophically controversial, so that we could really, in a sober-minded fashion, whatever that means in this context... Examine what it is that makes something a good theory, and maybe even why a theory about a certain thing is trendy to make it a specific time, and really examine kind of the meta-narratives around historical and scientific trends. And I thought that maybe the Big Bang, which is really an origin, a, a sort of religious origin story in a certain sense, was a good place to start. I don't want to offend anyone. I'm not saying that the theory of the Big Bang, Bang is unwell-founded. It's very well-founded. But I also had to remind myself... It's not the only story about where we come from, right? Really, the origin of the universe is a story that will change depending on who you ask, of course. If you ask the Chinese in the 600s BC what they thought was the origin of the universe, they would tell you that Fan Ku, the giant creator, came out of an egg and used a chisel to carve valleys and mountains, and that when he was done with all that work, he set up the moon and sun and stars and died when they were finished. He's a very hardworking guy, it sounds like. If you ask the people of Iceland in the last few thousand years what they thought, they'd have told you about something called the Yawning Gap, which was a sort of void separating two places. Um, and it's sort of, uh, I don't really understand it, but it sounds like one side impregnates the other side with a giant that crafted the world and universe. Interesting. The Krachi people of, Krachi people, am I, am I pronouncing that right? Of Togo in West Africa would tell you the vast blue Wolbari who used his belly as a towel and snatched bits of his body to add some kind, make some kind of soup created the world. And today in first world countries and places like America, we talk about kind of like a giant explosion that happened before which nothing occurred and existed that ushered in an era of expansion and temperature changes that brought about the universe we know now. And the thing these stories all have in common is that they ask us to grant things that are beyond our reasoning power and allow them to fit into otherwise sensible ideas about where things might originate. They all ask us to grant a certain miracle, including our origin story. The origin story of the universe that we have today is either great and very explanatory and easy to understand, or it's nonsensical, unsound, and an unsatisfying quagmire of induction, depending on who you talk to. Simon Singh, in his book Big Bang, Origin of the Universe, says this, quote, Humans have been staring up into space for thousands of generations, but we are privileged to be part of the first generation who can claim to have a respectable, rational, and coherent description for the creation and evolution of the universe. The Big Bang model offers an elegant explanation of the origin of everything we see in the night sky, making it one of the greatest achievements of the human intellect and spirit. It is the consequence of an insatiable curiosity, a fabulous imagination, acute observation, and ruthless logic. End quote. So that's one perspective, and that there are certainly there's certainly a lot about that that rings very true. 
That's just one perspective, though. If you were to ask the psychedelic philosopher Terence McKenna what he thought about it, though, he would say something like this, quote, We are asked by science to believe that the entire universe sprang from nothingness and at a single point and for no discernible reason. This notion is the limit case for credulity. In other words, if you can believe this, you can believe anything. End quote. He's kind of saying that the Big Bang theory of the universe has a Achilles heel the same way any other creation story does, which is that it asks you to believe something that might be fundamentally unbelievable. It asks us to imagine that time and space could have been timeless and spaceless, and that at some one moment the universe exploded into existence. There is a sense about it that is um, miracle-granting. And I think that if we're going to get to a real perspective for where the theory stands as an orthodoxy and where it stands in the philosophy of science, we should probably understand how the theory has built over the years, and it's built a lot. And the real evolution starts, you know, right where I like to start talking about things. It's actually right in the 600 BCs. And uh, a democracy and a plurality of ideas start to emerge, and people are finally tolerating new ones as well. The revised political atmosphere of civilizations at this time, especially in places like Greece, are allowing more open discussion uh, of celestial events that, generally speaking, were designated for religious thought leaders. Anaximander of Miletus said that the sun was a hole of fire in a fire-filled ring that kind of moved around the earth, and he thought the moon and stars were sort of like holes that had light shooting through them. A guy called Xenophanes thought that Earth exuded gases that accumulated at night until they reached a critical mass and maybe exploded, and that's what created the sun. These two explanations aren't particularly accurate, but they show an evolution of the process. People were starting to reference origin stories that didn't require gods in the explanation, and that's a marked departure from history, um, you know, the, the, the history of these sorts of inquiries. These ideas continually get refined and abandoned and more scientifically oriented thinkers coming about. And around 540 BC, we get Pythagoras of Samos, who has a very famous theory about those pesky triangles you might know. Pythagoras also develops a very early theory of music, and he's one of the first people to come around saying that math is basically fundamental to everything. You can apply it to everything. And Pythagoras has some successors whose works we have. And it all starts out with them recognizing the world is round, while also having some hiccups trying to figure out why it is that people don't just fall right off the earth if they're in the south, which is a problem that actually young kids will have today. They kind of ask, well, if the world's round, why don't people fall off of it? It's kind of a reasonable, that's why we would think that it's a reasonable and timeless objection. And it probably is, is something that caught the um, minds of people who were insisting that the world is flat. But once they have that in order, a guy called Eratosthenes comes in around 276 BC. Now, to just set the table, this is the post-Alexandrian world. And he's living at a time where there's an unprecedented amount of knowledge um, being shared and rewritten. Eratosthenes is sort of an ancient polymath. He had abilities in everything from music to poetry to the science of the day. And he's living, as I said, in the post-Alexander the Great world, where a lot of the books and scripture that's available is at the Library of Alexandria. So they need multidisciplinary philosopher types there to manage texts and oversee new creations. And the organization managing the library basically decides that this Eratosthenes is a good guy to make the chief librarian, which is sort of like being the leader of the largest global think tank you can imagine. 
And this Alexandrian library is very far from a library vibe. It's hip, it's vibrant, it's filled with dazzling human thinkers who are sort of accessing the ancient world's form of the internet and coming into contact with very diverse texts. Many historians and philosophers and scientists would love to have those books back. It's a shame that the library burns to the ground about 50 years before Christ. Some people blame Julius Caesar for this, by the way. He's also the guy who really benefits by making one of the newer pieces of contemporary history after that time, and it's famous. Anyways, Eratosthenes finds out about a place where there's a well in the ground where one day a year, June 21st, the summer solstice, the light of the sun shines all the way to the bottom of this hole, which meant that the sun was directly overhead. He uses that as sort of a zero-degree mark and places a stick on an angle at Alexandria at the same time and measures the angle between the sun and the ground to be 7.2 degrees. And from this, he can extrapolate that if the world is 360 degrees and the distance between these two locations was about 5,000 stades, then you can solve for the rest of the circle and you get the number 250,000 stades. So he calculated the Earth to be about 46,000 kilometers in circumference, which is only wrong by a few thousand kilometers, but if you use the Egyptian stady, it's wrong by like less than 500 kilometers. Um, and this unlocks a crucial new goal, figuring out the size of the moon and the sun. And he's now got the secret sauce to do that with the circumference of Earth in hand by comparing the size of the Earth's shadow on the moon during a solar eclipse, which gives you a relative value showing the Earth to be four times the size of the moon, which means the moon is four times smaller. And from this, you can get the distance to the moon by holding your hand up, blocking the moon with your fingernail, and plugging that into a triangular equation that basically uh, calculates how long your fingernail is in proportion to your arm, and setting that up as um, part of a smaller triangle that exists between your face and your hand. And you can, once you've done that, uh, you can calculate all of the sides of that triangle, including the legs of that triangle, which go all the way out to the moon. Stuff like this that sort of sets the Greek philosophers and scientists apart from the rest of the world. There were other places in the world that had a firm grasp on scientific, technological, and mathematical reasoning. But the Greeks are the ones who are doing the science for science's sake. Um, it sets them apart from places like Egypt or Babylonia, for example. Those are the places that come to mind immediately. And it's just because the Greeks are specifically scientists. They're curious people. The Egyptians were kind of first and foremost technologists and builders, and the Babylonians were a sort of weird mix of logical curators and manic mythmakers. Um, reading from Henry Poincare, who's sort of talking about the best motivations to do science, he says this, quote, The scientist does not study nature because it is useful. He studies it because he delights in it, and he delights in it because it is beautiful. If nature were not beautiful, it would not be worth knowing. And if nature were not worth knowing, life would not be worth living. Of course, I do not speak here of that beauty that strikes the senses, the beauty of qualities and appearances. Not that I undervalue such beauty, far from it, but it has nothing to do with science. I mean that profounder beauty that comes from the harmonious order of the parts and which a pure intelligence can grasp. End quote. Well, as some of my friends from Nyack, New York would say, that is a dank point. Um, I think this dichotomy plays out extremely well today when you're looking at capitalist economies and what technologies are pursued. It's amazing how many people know what a light bulb is but don't know what light is. And that is a cycle that will continue on through history. I don't want to beat 
this point down too much, but this is a whole podcast within itself. Now, when we are looking at exactly what these Greeks did, um, they're, they're not quite done here, and uh, there, there's a little bit more that's going to follow up, and one of the things is the explorations here that the Greeks are doing are very virginal and pure. They're starting from these like really rugged first principles and using like very simple measurements. Now, a guy called Philolaus of Croton, maybe sometime in the 5th century, comes along and says, hey, I've been looking at these charts, 5th century BC, by the way. And he says, hey, guys, I've been looking at the charts, and you know, I'm pretty sure the Earth rotates around the sun, actually, and not the other way around. It's followed up by some brilliant science and mathematics by a guy called Aristarchus, who manages to produce some incredible new ideas, including the Earth rotating on its axis every 24 hours. He had that right. He will be mostly rejected by the philosophical world at the time that mainly to a man held that the Earth was the center of the universe, not just a solar system, a universe. And that any sort of mention of the opposite was something that people in the philosophical world were very insensitive to. The one, th- th- this is like very interesting to me. Aristarchus is rejected probably because his point goes against a sort of common sense, which watching the sun move through the sky every day kind of provided people. People were content with the so-called geocentric model of the universe. That's how we'd call that. We would say that the geocentric model is the earth-centered model of the universe. And some said that, you know, hey, if the earth's moving, why don't we have a constant wind pushing against us? Obviously, the earth isn't moving. It was just too early of a point to stick. Now, there were some increasingly anxiety-producing questions at this time, though. People were observing planets that seemed to temporarily reverse their motion, and this contradicted the idea that orbits should be round, because everything to the Greeks is round. Round is just a very important quality that everything in the universe shares, which, to be fair, it turns out that round and obloid, all of this stuff, they were onto something with it, but they presumed too much about circles as we're going to see that orbits are not circles. But um, I'm not sure the etymology of the word, but the Greek word for planet, planete, means wanderer. And uh, what they didn't have in the equation for understanding the motions of these planets was that the perspective itself was moving. Us, we were moving. Because Earth itself was rotating, which made retrograde motions seem to appear in the night sky. So when they mapped out where the planets should have appeared... There are all these times where the planets seemed to go, if, you know, if they expected it to go to the west in the sky, it went to the east, because it was, you know, and then it started going back to the west again. And the explanations for this become increasingly compensatory, um, some suggesting that the um, planets did small mini-circles while they did a grander circle. It's all, it's crazy what kind of explanations people will come up for to maintain some kind of underlying thesis. But it's it's a bit of an aesthetic and even a religious issue in a way. I mean, geometry is considered a sacred thing to the Greek philosophers, and preserving geometric principles in scientific inquiry is huge, and they were right for that. They were correct for that. They just weren't seeing the entire picture quite yet. But the observations of these circles and the imperfectibility of the mathematical principles that governed the rotations started causing major rifts that provoked new theories and ideas. Now, there's a guy called Ptolemy, not the Ptolemy from the Alexander the Great story, 
um, who comes forth and basically says that the Earth is the center of the universe and all the planets are doing micro orbits, like I said, while they macro orbit, which makes, you know, little circles inside a circle and sort of compensate for what is obviously a glaring issue, as I said before. And in 150 AD, it's Ptolemy's work that gets written down and becomes enshrined into canon of European astronomy and science. And it accepts as fact that the Earth is at the center of the universe. And it gets translated about a thousand years later when the king Alfonso VI grants access to a massive library at Toledo which contained the book that maybe hadn't been looked at for a long time. And over the next 100 to 200 years, criticisms of the theory start emerging. But it isn't until the 16th century that the model is very seriously challenged. So while there's some dissent brewing in the intellectual you know, in the intellectual community of a maturing Europe, including a number of people who are sensing that the geocentric thing is just flat wrong, a young man named Mikolaj Kopernik, whose name, if we Latinized it, would sound like Nicholas Copernicus, starts coming up with a new idea, not actually not a new idea, but a, a revamping of the old idea that the, these, these Greeks had, that maybe the earth wasn't the center of the thing. Copernicus had some copies of the scrolls produced by the Spanish king. And he will begin working on new theories about the nature of space and time and eventually compile them into a short work that basically no one read during his lifetime. It was not popular. It was, it was a flop. And at the heart of his most famous work, The Commentaries, he says seven things of great interest to this discussion. This is, this is what uh, Nicholas Copernicus basically says. One is that the heavenly bodies do not share a common center. Two is that the center of the earth is not the center of the universe. Three is that the center of the universe is near the sun. Four is that the distance from the earth to the sun is insignificant compared with the distance to the stars. Five, the apparent daily motion of the stars is a result of the earth's rotation on its own axis. Six, the apparent annual sequence of movements of the sun is a result of the earth's revolution around it. All the planets revolve around the sun. Seven, the apparent retrograde motion of some of the planets is merely the result of our position as an observer on Earth. And all of that stuff is now in pretty firm, but during his lifetime, like I said, no one was really paying all that much attention. And, and these posits weren't just an accurate thing that we would recognize today. In this time, they're literal scientific heresy. He will eventually move into his uncle's castle, where over 30 years he will retool this original work that he probably wrote in his early 30s. But he's a sensitive guy, and he's very concerned about the perceptions of other people, and he's seemingly having a hard time finishing the papers and getting them out. His fear will prove to be valid when the church persecuted Giordano Bruno, who was one of his admirers and had all kinds of theories, and said that there might be life on other planets. Copernicus gets older, continues his work, and is eventually approached by a young German you know, grad student kind of guy called Redicus in his like 20s, who thought that Copernicus was really on to something. He wants to have the new works printed and plans it all out, but this, this young grad student is recalled to his university at the last moment under some suspicious circumstances. Redicus allows his friend and clergyman to oversee the publishing of the work, and it takes a while, and that's a big mistake, because the church is the last place that wants to hear about this. Copernicus can't wait long, though, to have this thing out. He's on his deathbed, and just a few days before he dies, the printed manuscript reaches him. And in a horrible twist of fate, there's a preface to it that's been added that basically emasculates his theory entirely, calling the work shoddy and not to be taken seriously. 
It was perhaps the work of the clergyman that the job was passed off to, to it was perhaps his work to add that preface to the rest of an ostensibly good theory. Copernicus dies after reading the manuscript. It's a sad moment. The heliocentric model of the universe that Copernicus had sort of invested his life work in is ultimately shelved and gains very little visibility, and the resuscitation of it will have to wait until the next generation. Enter Tycho Brahe. Born in 1546 to a noble Danish family, the stories surrounding Tycho are as colorful as you get for a revolutionary scientist. Sounds like a lot more, he sounds like a lot more of the people I've uh, ran with in the rock and roll world, to be honest. Between sword fights to near death and pet elks allowed to wander haphazardly through a state-of-the-art cosmological observations center built into a castle on an island. He's the perfect character for dispatching of deeply entrenched thinking in a certain sense. Tycho will revolutionize astronomical observation and impress the king of Denmark a lot, so much that he will gift Tycho that island for the sake of turning it into an observatory, a place called Haven, and he turns it into Uraniborg. It will attract visitors from all over Europe. He will host insane parties with dwarfs and mechanized statues. His pet elk will wander around the observatory drinking until one day it gets too drunk and falls down some stairs and dies. But as crazy as all the parties were, this Tycho is an enormously gifted astronomer, and he proposes a sort of middle ground, I guess. Tycho will say that the Earth really is still the center of the solar system and perhaps the universe, but a solar system with the sun at the center of it and all the other planets rotating around it itself rotates around Earth. So you have the sun at the center and then rotating, or sorry, you have the Earth at the center in Tycho's model, and then out in space, there's a whole solar system of other planets rotating around the sun, and that whole solar system is rotating around the Earth. It's an insanely... (laughs) I mean, when you think about the elegance and the um, durability of scientific theories, it's so funny the contortions that we go through to try to make new data match up to earlier information. We're just all over the place. We, we Compensating for the earlier explanation can throw us off and really cause bizarre things. Tico will be kicked out eventually for partying too much, and the new king that comes along at a certain point is sick of paying apparently 5% of their GDP for just his observatory. They were obsessed with space, apparently. But he will pass on his work to a young man named Johann Kepler, who will see that Tycho did not drink and observe in vain, because Tycho will die. Kepler is from the bottom of the bottom of civilization. He is raised by a chronic alcoholic criminal father and a mother accused of witchcraft, but he will emerge a miserably proficient mathematician with a massive inferiority complex. Um, He thinks he's a zero, but he is a hero. And at 25, he decides Copernicus had it right, and he starts writing about the heliocentric model. And what emerges from Copernicus's work is breathtaking. And it's coherent, and it just sings. He exposes some of Copernicus's errors, and he also says this, quote, The planets move in ellipses, not perfect circles. The planets continuously vary their speed. The sun is not quite at the center of these orbits. End quote. The ellipse thing is what explains why the ancient Greeks were confused about the locations of certain planets. The Greeks' sacred idea of circles hampered their ability to think outside the box. I I can't help but notice how much this resembles so much thinking that goes on today, how we're unable to abandon certain obviously wrong priors to 
attract new scientific theories, new theories of logic, new ways of inducing what the state of the universe is and what the state, uh, where we come from, who we are, um, being able to break down those priors and being able to issue healthy skepticism is really what the product is by the time we get to the, you know, the theory of the Big Bang in a number of ways. And I just think it's very useful to reflect on how the errors get made. Kepler's book, though, of course, flops. No one wants to hear this story. Like, really, no one wants to hear this story. And and people talk to Kepler about this, and he has a moment where he tells how he feels about this, and it's interesting. Quote, We do not ask for what useful purpose the birds do sing, for song is their pleasure, since they were created for singing. Similarly, we ought not to ask why the human mind troubles to fathom the secrets of the heavens. The diversity of the phenomena of nature is so great, and the treasure hidden in the heavens is so rich, precisely in order that the human mind shall never be lacking in fresh nourishment. End quote. Here we can see what the passion of a scientist really, really relies on. It relies on this naturalistic wonder about the state of things in the world. And I think that you can see a lot of the times in the history of science that it is the scientists who are willing to risk the most and be the least capitulating to the orthodoxy of the days that are able to discover the most novel phenomena and are ultimately able to prove that those phenomena are the case. And on that note, I want to thank you guys for joining me on the first Origin Stories, the first part one of a eventually three-part series on Origin Stories. And we're going to continue following the story of the Big Bang, essentially, in the next two podcasts. If you liked it, give us a rating. Uh, follow me on Instagram. Subscribe on social media. Give us a review, whatever you want to do. See you guys later.